Well, good morning. We are starting a new sermon series this morning on 2 Timothy. We finished up 1 Timothy last week. Um, and just by way of reminder, these sermon series that we're doing right now, uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Lord willing, Titus, uh, these are all pastoral epistles, but they all deal with this concept, this theology of discipleship. So it's purposeful what we're doing right now as we look to gather together, and I shared last week this 10-member team right now that's going to be coming together to help cast vision for Trinity in the making and maturing of disciples. This becomes paramount for us to understand why we make disciples, how we make disciples, who a disciple is, who should do that work, and etc. And so I'm excited to get into 2 Timothy because 2 Timothy, at its core, is a study of discipleship. It is the passing of the baton from Paul to Timothy with a purpose. And so this study in discipleship is going to show us what we are to do with the Word of God as it was passed from Paul to Timothy. When I was in high school, I participated in a lot of different sports. Anything that I could participate in, and believe it or not, this slow old man also ran track. One of my favorite races, and I know I've shared it before, is the 4x400 four four relay. 4x400 four relay. You know, the 4x100 the would be over in seconds, literally. But there was something about the 4x400 four race that captured my attention still today. When the Olympics are on or there's track and field, that's the event that I want to see. And here's the reason why. is because it requires sprinting, but also endurance. That combination is rare. It requires such strength, such perseverance, speed, agility, everything that you can imagine wrapped up into an individual. But then comes the tricky part. That is, someone at some point in time decided that how this race would be won is they would take a baton, a short little piece of metal that is used today, but it would be given to the man at the start or the woman at the start of the race. They would run their 400 meters and in this little zone of overlap between the tail end of their 400 and the beginning of the other 400, this baton had to be passed. And it has to be done with such precision. You can win or lose a race if you're not fast enough in passing that baton. If there isn't that sense of urgency to do it right. If you drop the baton, all is lost. So I want you to keep this concept of this relay in mind. That there is a sense of urgency. We need to sprint when it comes to giving the gospel. But at the same time, we need to endure, persevere, despite what the world throws at us. In 2 Timothy, it talks about hardship. It talks about suffering. It talks about persecution. All these things come against us. 
We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus says, in this world you'll have tribulation, but take care, I've overcome the world. Meaning all those things I've overcome. My grace is sufficient. Well, as we get into this text this morning, I want to give a little bit of an introduction to 2 Timothy, and then we'll get into four words that I want to give you this morning. Four Ps. I want to talk about discipleship, but it comes down to four Ps. And you'll hear this a lot more as we go forward with our vision. Those four Ps are proclamation, prayer, people, and perseverance. Proclamation, prayer, people, and perseverance. Now this text this morning doesn't chop up into four nice little sections. As those relay racers are passing that baton, there's a little bit of overlap between one 400 meter and the other. And so the passing of the baton has to be done with a little bit of precision, a little bit of understanding. And so we're going to look at it that way as well. So we'll talk about proclamation and we'll go through the text as a whole. And then we'll talk about prayer as a whole. And then we'll talk about people as a whole. And then perseverance. We'll round up with that. So I want to set the stage, set the scene for you of what's taking place here in 2 Timothy. It's been roughly four to five years since Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy. He was in prison before, and he was released. Now tradition has it, Clement of Rome wrote some writings in 95 A.D., he knew people that knew Paul personally. They were still living at that point in time. And so tradition has it that as Paul was released from that first house imprisonment, not the chains that he sees right now, but that house imprisonment where he was attached to a guard of the Praetorian Guard and sharing the gospel in Rome and had people come and go as he pleases, that's not the case now. But we know from tradition that Paul was released after that first imprisonment. Many think he went to the farthest ends of the West that he could go, which was Spain. That's where he intended to take the gospel. For them in the Roman Empire, that was the end of the world. So in, our, in mission terms today, we want to take the gospel to the four quarters of the earth. That was seen as one of Paul's accomplishments that he wanted to complete. So there was talk that he went there and then went back to other churches preaching the gospel, strengthening churches. But it's believed along the way, and we'll see it in the closing of this particular epistle, that he left a cloak, some books, and some parchments at Troas. It's believed that he was traveling with Timothy at that time after he had gotten out. But for whatever reason, he was arrested by the Romans in Troas and taken away. Paul was mentioned in this text this morning, I remember your tears. It's probably that separation that took place at that point in time. So here's the context we have. Paul is now in prison. Nero is on the Roman throne. And he persecuted Christians. 
Paul had been through there at one time and acquitted and set free as I spoke earlier. But there's a different sense to the text in this second letter. He sees his death as being imminent. He says that he is being poured out like a drink offering in chapter 4. If you're familiar with the Old Testament and the sacrificial system, you would sacrifice bulls and goats and lambs. You'd make a grain offering. You may put some salt on the offering. The final thing that was done to an offering was the libation, the drink offering. Paul says he's being poured out this point in time. If I took this glass of water here and I tipped it upside down, you would see it poured out and then it would be empty. It wouldn't take very long for this to become empty. So Paul knows that he is approaching the end of his life. And so he picks up a pen and he writes to Timothy. Now, we don't have what we had in 1 Timothy, this clear reason for Paul's writing. 1 Timothy, you know that was 3.15, that says that I plan to come to you, but if I'm delayed, Timothy, I want to write you so one may know how they should behave or conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the pillar and buttress of truth. So there was an orderly fashion that was coming into the church at that point in time, and Timothy is the delegate. Now, we like to talk about timid Timothy and how he was shy and bashful But do you realize when you start reading the Scripture, I was going through it this week, the assignments that he got? I talked about Marines last week. Timothy is Paul's Marine. He sent him to Corinth. You read 1 Corinthians. Does that sound like a good church to be going to and trying to work? He sent him to Thessalonica. He was dealing with the theological issue of have people been raised from the dead yet? He sent him to Ephesus, and you know from 1 Timothy what was going on there, the false teaching. So Timothy wasn't all that timid. He might have been an introvert. I've actually taught this idea of timidity. I think I've had a course correction in my life after this week. So he writes to Timothy, and he wants Timothy to know that the time for his race to be run is about to be over. And he needs to pass the baton to Timothy. And he needs to do so with encouragement to Timothy. Flip over to chapter 4 for just a moment. Let me give you this picture of this reason for writing here. In chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, look at verse 5. In the closing out of this chapter, this fourth chapter of 2 Timothy, he is giving a a series of imperatives to Timothy in how he should run the waste. He tells him to be sober-minded, to endure suffering, to do the work of an evangelist, and it's this fourth one that really gets into his reason for writing. Fulfill your ministry. Timothy, complete the race. Now, Timothy has had 
a hard time in ministry. Pastor Jake and I might call this burnout for him. He was in Ephesus. He's battling against false teachers to the point where some are thrown out of the church, excommunicated. He's got a rough go of it. And all indications are, as this time of four to five years have passed, the church in Ephesus really hasn't gotten that much better. It's been a battle the whole time. He is worn and he is fatigued. And now, Paul says, fulfill, complete, accomplish your ministry. This is a word to all of us. What is your ministry? What is my ministry? Oh yeah, you can say I'm one of the pastors here at the church. That's, that's my ministry. You, you can say, well, I, I work in sound and AV. That's my ministry. You can say I work in the nursery and volunteer there or I work with the youth or I sing in the choir that will be back in the fall. But is that really your ministry? What has Jesus called us to do? What has He called us to do? He has called us to make disciples. He says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go. Bang! The race is on. Make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Like a track coach, watching you make the round. So here Timothy has been given this task. Paul's saying, here's the baton. It's your turn, Timothy. If you look at verse 7, actually 6 in chapter 4. He says, My departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Every single one of those verbs are in the perfect tense, meaning it's done. Paul has sprinted and he has endured and he has gotten to the finish line and he's broken the tape. So he says, Timothy... The gospel is on the line. The glory of Christ is on the line. Here's the baton. Here's the gospel. Take it. It's your turn. For your generation and the next. So I'll ask you again, what's your ministry? Do you see the people in this room? To your left and to your right, before you and behind you? Can you see that they are part of your ministry? Can you see the people in your workplace as your ministry? Can you see the people on your street as your ministry? The ministry of giving the gospel. And what is that giving of the gospel? It is the proclamation It is the speaking of the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ alone. So our fourth, first P, proclamation. 
Let me take you through this text to show you the importance of proclamation when it comes to discipleship. You can have no salvation if the Word of God is not spoken, if it's not taught, if it's not preached. Otherwise, what are people placing faith in? So proclamation becomes very important. And Paul starts at the very beginning in this text to say that I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am a sent one. He has put me in this race to run it. So I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ being the anointed one sent by God. By His will. And it's according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And there's the gospel in a nutshell. The proclamation. The promise of life. That promise goes back to Genesis 3.15. Where God promises that the seed of the woman shall crush the seed of the serpent. That promise goes on to show itself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to David. What is the promise? It's the unfolding of a Savior. There's this promise of life that is spoken of by Paul here, this proclamation. And the proclamation is you don't have life if it's not the life that's promised by God in Christ. Paul opens his letter to Titus, the Lord willing we'll get to later, that talks about the promise that is made of eternal life. And that promise between the Father and the Son. The Father has elected a people before the foundation of the world, given them to the Son to redeem, meaning He's going to pay for your debt of sin. Think about that proclamation, that life, and how it is actually accomplished. God has to send His Son to become man so that He can live a perfect life. Because you and I cannot. We're sinners. We sin because we're sinners. In Adam, all sinned. He was our representative. So Christ comes first and foremost to live a perfect life. Because the wages of our own sins is death. There has to be a life to be given for us to have life. So Jesus does that. He lives that perfect life. Lives it to where He can give you that benefit of life. But then He also goes to the cross he dies to pay your penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. And then he is raised, God raises him from the dead to assure the life that is given to you is now yours. There's the promise. There it is accomplished. There it is put forth and it is received by faith alone. That's what Paul talks about. And this race that we run is to make disciples to work with God to gather this people unto Himself. 
Revelation chapter 7 talks about what things look like in the future. This multitude from the nations, every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered around the throne of grace. That's what we're looking forward to. That's eternal life, all of us together with Christ. So that's what we proclaim. Now when do we proclaim it? Our text gets into, at verse 5, this proclamation taking place to Timothy. And the people who are proclaiming the word to Timothy are his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. These were both Jewish women who would have been instructed and steeped in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the responsibility for teaching children fell with the Father. And they were to teach them the Word in their coming and their going, in their laying down and their rising up. Deuteronomy chapters 6 and 7, you can go back and read that. So parents of children you have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel to your children. We know the results of the Lord. And this is the hard paradox that we always face. The paradox of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We cannot go just to one side or to the other and park there. If I say, well, it's all the sovereignty of God and I do nothing about it, how do my children learn? If I try to go the other way and put it all on me, I'm not praying for their salvation. I'm not persevering. I give it to them once and I let it go. What happens then? I know many of us in this body have wayward sons and daughters. But as I said, this, this gospel race that we run requires urgency, a sprint, and endurance. God is still able. His arms are strong enough to reach anywhere, anyone, anytime. So as parents, we are to teach, proclaim the gospel to our sons and to our daughters. In this case... The grandmother and mother taught. The father was an unbeliever. He was a Greek. But the gospel got to them. They, he was taught. Now he probably heard the fulfillment of the gospel on Paul's first visit to Lystra. It's in Acts chapter 13. And so this proclamation came to, to Timothy and later he became a part of his team. And so the proclamation comes to us through the apostle, through the apostolic teaching that is then given to others such as parents and teachers, maybe even friends that share the gospel with us. John Stott, whose commentary I read this week on this particular passage, he talked particularly about a person who had shared the gospel with him from years before. He said of him 
that it was an amazing thing. He said, if he wouldn't have taught me about Jesus, I would have been shipwrecked. That term used in 1 Timothy. And he said that the man that did it was Eric Nash. Now, he had a longer name than that. He had Eric John Hewitson Nash. And they gave him the nickname Brash. Bash. Bash Nash. Okay? But Nash wasn't athletic. He wasn't muscular. In fact, he, he wasn't what you would think of masculine guy to be. He didn't have that masculine panache is what was said. He was quiet, soft-spoken. He had gone to school, prepared for ministry, even had a place, a parish, two of them actually. But he didn't have the manner to speak. But he was a godly man. They said that he could captivate people by his storytelling. And that's how he got a hold of John Stott. He went into running this ministry to public schools in England. And it was through that that he reached thousands of young boys. Over 200 people that he discipled went into ministry. That's discipleship. That's discipleship. Would you be a someone like Bash Nance? It is amazing the people that he reached for the gospel. And he did it with urgency and he did it with endurance. So people play a part in this. So there's a proclamation. Let me go to prayer. Prayer becomes extremely important. I'm going to throw this advertisement out to you as well. Every Wednesday here at the church in this sanctuary, we gather together for prayer. We pray for our church. We pray to make disciples. We pray for one another. We do those things. But I think if we are going to be disciple makers, be made a disciple, prayer needs to be a valuable part of that. And Paul points to this text and gives us some things that we should be praying for as disciples and disciple makers. He begins in verse 2. This salutation is what it appears like. He says, grace, mercy, and peace. Sounds like a blessing. But it's more than that. Paul is about to pour out his heart to the Lord in prayer. But this idea of grace and mercy and peace are things that Timothy absolutely needs. Every disciple of Jesus needs these three things. Grace for our unworthiness. Grace for our strength. Mercy to help us when we're helpless. And peace to give us rest. When the waves of persecution and suffering come, we need to have the peace of God. So he prays for that, for Timothy, knowing the race that he is about to run. 
He also gives thanksgiving to God. Praises Him for that is who He serves. And He sees that that needs to be a preeminent part of Timothy's prayer. Thanksgiving. He also prays for Timothy and his remembrance of him. His already tested medal of service. So he praises him for his loyalty. He remembers his tears from their separation. For his love of ministry and taking the gospel. For his fellowship, he longs to be seen by Paul. And for joy. He prays for his faith. He's reminded of this sincere faith that Timothy has. We need this encouragement. He prays for the remembrance of his grandmother and mother that were so instrumental in his faith. But he prays most of all for the gift that has been given to him. The gift that is given to each one of us. And that is the Holy Spirit. In verse 6. And he prays for Timothy's encouragement. He prays for his circumstances. He doesn't want him to be in a ministry where he's always in a constant state of fear from false teachers, from those who bring on discouragement, from the warfare, trying to reach people from Christ. All these things he prays for. So when we think about prayer for other people, we do so in, from remembrance. If we think of someone, pray for that someone. And what John Stott about, said about Nash was this. He said, one of the things that made the discipleship so different is I got a letter from Nash every week for seven years saying that he prayed for me and the things that he prayed for. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine the encouragement? How many days go by where you're discouraged? You feel tired. You just, I, how am I going to go on? Have you ever gotten a card? A note from someone? And you read it? It's very simple. It says, thank you. All of a sudden, you get got a little energy. We need that. We need to proclaim the Word of God. We need to pray for one another and pray for the lost. Third part, that paradox, sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Paul understood this. He knew that everything depended upon the Lord, but he says that he worked harder than anyone else as if it was all dependent upon him. And then he prayed for the grace to have the strength to do the work. God in His wisdom has said that people come to Christ through the proclamation of the Word, through prayer, those means of grace, and yet at the same time, He uses people. Inadequate, weak, stumbling, bumbling people that can't seem to find the words and yet He does. He uses us. 
He says, go. Don't worry about it. I'll do the work. He uses people. He uses grandmothers and mothers, grandfathers and fathers. He uses friends. He uses teachers, all types of different people to proclaim the Word of God to us and then we to them. My grandfather, Art Wilson, found out years later, I've talked about him before. He regularly prayed for four generations. He prayed for his wife, Grace, my mother and her brother, my father when they started dating and getting married, us as children before we're ever born, and for us children's children. He did that. You could do that here on Wednesday nights. People going before the throne of grace. He uses that. He hears that. He moves for that. All kinds of people. Well, finally, let's talk about perseverance. This race is hard. Our life is not long, but it's hard. And we need to have perseverance. We need to have strength. Part of that perseverance comes through knowing that God has been working. Paul, in verse 3, thanks God for whom he serves, as did his ancestors. When we remember those who have gone before us, it inspires us to move forward and keep going. An encouraging word from one to another. Hearing that someone is praying for us will persevere. Knowing the encouragement that we receive. Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. I've heard about you. I haven't forgotten you. And then most importantly, this, this perseverance. He says in verse 6, he says, I want to remind you that has the idea of encouragement to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Need to break that down for you just a little bit. Remember the first time <laughs> making a fire, um, camping, and I was a pyromaniac. You'd get the wood and things together, and you would try to get it started in lighter fluid, and then more lighter fluid, and then just another squirt just to watch it flame. Paul uses this metaphor here of fanning into flame. Now this is not a fire that has gone out. It's not a fire that is quenched. Okay, you know when you make a fire in a wood fireplace and it burns for a while, then it goes down, you have the coals left. And then, and then you'll put some fresh wood on top of it and you might get something to billow it put some air to it, and it'll flame up again. That's not what he's talking about here. 
Paul is talking about rekindling. Gail and I like to go to North Carolina every once in a while. We'll stay with the Hansons. They have a huge fireplace. I mean, it's, it's, it's wider than this pulpit. And it's probably just as tall. And George, the husband, methodically puts this together, this, this fire, and gets it started. But here's what George does. George never lets the fire go down. He's constantly taking that poker and poking it a little bit, stirring it up, adding another piece of wood on it. Steve's over here nodding. He's got a fire pit. He knows how to do a fire. You don't let it go out. So what what Paul is telling Timothy, he says, in this race for the gospel, this urgency, this endurance that's needed, you need to keep that flame going. You need to keep that passion for the gospel going. You need to fan into flame that gift that's in you. Listen, we forget far too often that the Holy Spirit resides in us. That, that the Holy Spirit is with us. You know when you question whether you should say something to somebody about Jesus or not? And you go, mm, I gotta hear it. What Paul's saying here is just, you know that, the Spirit that's in you? You know that the gifting that you've been given, the gift of eternal life, that, that eternal life that wells up within you that should be coming out like a fountain of water? Fan it just a little bit. Remember what Christ has done for you and then speak the word. Speak the word. That's the gift that he's talking about. And then he further elaborates to encourage Timothy that the Spirit here, and if your Bible has a little S there, it should be a capital S. This is the Holy Spirit, the gift that is given to us, the Holy Spirit, along with spiritual gifts. I don't want to leave that out, but God gave us, it has a spirit, indefinite article, that's not there in the Greek. It actually is the definite article, God, Spirit. So one applies to the other, so it is the Spirit. God gave us the Spirit, not of fear. Better interpretation of that is of cowardness. You don't have to be afraid, Timothy. You don't have to be a, I am with you. What you speak is representing me. I'm not going to let you go down. And even if I do, in that moment, you'll be with me. We cannot have a spirit of cowardness. It is something that has been through Scripture. Jeremiah, I'm just a youth. You, you don't want to, want to use me. You have a spirit that I've given to you, my words that come out of your mouth. Moses, I can't, can't expect me to use this mouth that I have, the way I speak. Go. He says he didn't give us this spirit of cowardness, but a spirit of power of love and of self-control this spirit of power is what keeps us going it's like nuclear energy it never stops 
You don't have to go fill up with gas, take a rest, get ready to go again. It's constant energy. It's constant power to do the work of gospel ministry. Then he gives us love. Love that we can't comprehend or understand, and yet we see it in Jesus Christ. I love Paul Tripp's definition of love being self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. That's the love He gives us. The love that Jesus had for us. Then there's this idea of self-controlled or of a sober mind. It is being transformed by the Word of God so that we have clarity of our purpose. Clarity of our purpose. And when we see the clarity of our purpose, that what God is doing throughout redemptive history, that He is gathering a people from every age, from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, that will be with Him throughout all eternity, when we grasp that vision, we go, what's my part? It's to make disciples. It's to speak the Word. It's to proclaim the Gospel. It's to pray for others to be saved. It is to be used as the people of God for that purpose and to persevere in it. So church, Paul had the baton. He gave it to Timothy. He said, my race is finished. Timothy had the baton. He's given it to another. And through the ages, we have the baton now. You need to sprint and endure for the sake of Jesus Christ and for His glory. Will you do that? Well, with God's grace, mercy, and peace, we will. Let us pray. Father, we do thank You for this passage, for discipleship, for how You have brought us to Yourself through Jesus And Father, I do pray for each and every one of us, myself included, that you would help us to speak the word, that you would help us to pray, that you would help us to be used, and that you would help us to persevere, that nothing would get in the way of our finish line, which is being in your presence, but do it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.